are now listening to Abstract Thought, a podcast about staying inspired, the business side of art, and other various topics along those lines. Um, I am your host, Nick Smith, formerly known as Nick Abstract. Um, This podcast is podcast number two. And uh, yesterday, I went from never doing a podcast before to now doing the second one, which is a bit odd. And I honestly never thought I'd even do a podcast or if I would know what to say and whatnot, but you know what, we're here, so podcast number two starting now. Uh, first off, I would like to thank you guys for your comments and questions on Instagram. It was super great to hear from a wide range of people and ask questions about art, ask questions about you know personal stuff and you know how to intertwine those things into, into your own approach. Um, so yeah, th- thank you guys, I appreciate it, and um, Throughout this podcast, I'll be reading off some of those questions, shedding a little bit more light into some of my process, and uh, yeah. Let me see. First question, how did you enter this phase in your art, and would you have gone the design and art route if it wasn't for your interest in graffiti? Um, As some of you who kind of know me a little bit more on a personal level, um, you, you may know that I kind of got my start producing large-scale works through graffiti and street art. Um, I I started painting graffiti in 2013 in the spring, I believe. And uh, yeah, it it enveloped a lot of my time and a lot of my thought process. And, you know, when you're a senior in high school, you're you're considering a lot of like, okay, what do I want to do with my future? You know, do I want to do this job? Do I want to do this job? Do I want to go to college? you know, what, what the heck do I want to do? And, um, graffiti was a good escape from, um, you know, it, it, there's no financial incentive to paint graffiti. It's kind of like you're just producing art for the sake of producing art. Um, and it felt good to just be able to create and, and do something out there that isn't as, uh, I don't know, as you grow up as a young kid, you like, the world can seem a bit overwhelming at times. And then, You know, you have to start paying, you know, paying for car insurance and paying for all kinds of other stuff. So it can be a little bit tricky early on with all the things that you have to do to really take the time to be like, hey, I'm just going to go create something. And so graffiti was a great outlet for me to, um, and still is a good outlet, um, to just kind of paint whatever I want, have fun, and not really stress too much, um, so yeah, I think that that definitely sparked my interest in, in producing large scale works. And in graffiti, you you're pretty used to painting pretty large, and you learn to be pretty comfortable with with sketching things out at a very large scale and using a lot of paint. And I think it it taught me a lot in that once I started doing murals and stuff, it wasn't as scary as I feel like painting a mural would be if I've never painted anything that large before. Um, and then in terms of how I entered the phase I'm in right now with my art, I mean, I'm still super early on. I've only been a full-time artist for about a little over a year. So yeah, still super new to it. Uh, I guess how I've entered this phase in my art is just through, I don't even know, trying my best. Uh, (laughs) reaching out to clients, trying to make things happen, and uh, definitely doing a lot of outreach to different businesses, seeing who might be interested in a mural or a canvas or something. So that, that's been extremely helpful. 
Um, another question we have is, can you talk about the process of painting a mural or doing a canvas from thought to matter or idea to final product? Good question. From my experience, some of my best ideas um, tend to originate on like very rudimentary like substrates. For instance, you know, some of my best concepts and ideas have been sketched on like a napkin or, you know, when you get a certain idea, it just kind of flows into you and you got to sketch it out or get it out and you got to find a way to capture it, I feel like. And some of the biggest mural projects and things that I've done have arisen through, you know, literally grabbing a pencil at a stoplight. And, uh, you know, while you're waiting for that light to turn green, you just quickly sketch out this idea that popped in your head. And sometimes that's the best idea that showed up. And that's the idea that you're actually going to spend hours and hours and hours and hours painting painstakingly into these bricks. And like, it's kind of weird how an idea can just take a brief moment to actually enter your head, but then it can take a full week to actually install that in the real world. So that, that's been an interesting experience, I would say. Um, we got a, a decent amount of questions about art school as well. Um, you know, Nick, did you attend art school? What did you study in art school? What was your program kind of structured like? Um, and I know for a lot of artists, some people never went to art school. You know, they maybe went to business school or they did something entirely different and, and uh, art was just sort of their escape, which is awesome. I ended up going to art school. Um, I went to art school in downtown Indianapolis at the IUPY Heron School of Art and Design. And it was pretty cool. I met a lot of cool people there, got a lot of great experiences, but um, my area of study wasn't fine art. It was graphic design, which in the graphic design program at Heron, they had you take, you know, they still had you take like introductory to drawing one, drawing two, introductory to three-dimensional art, and like you still had to take the standard art classes that were the prerequisites, but... I think midway through the program, the, the, the course structure tilted a bit towards graphic design and working with computers and designing mobile apps and websites and stuff, whereas some of the people in my, um, in my prereq classes, they, they went the illustration route and the, and the painting route, and so they continued in drawing and painting. And, um, you know, I, I think it was necessary, and I was going to school for graphic design anyway, so it wasn't out of the realm of... Um, you know, reasonability that I would just have graphic design courses and l less art classes. But um, yeah, I, I think gra the graphic design school was pretty cool. It taught me a very different way of thinking and uh, thinking very client-centric on stuff that you make, trying to find a way to solve problems. And um, yeah, a question that I got about art school was, was it worth it? This question gets bounced around quite a bit. Um, from people who do go to art school or people who are successful without attending an art school. From my experience, it was definitely it was definitely worth. I don't know. It's a tricky question because college is super duper expensive. I mean, I, I personally don't know the cost breakdown of where that where that money goes when you pay it. You know, these days it seems like college is just like almost like a made up number. <laughs> They're like, hey, just pay us like a crap ton of money. And then we're going to teach you this stuff, which maybe there's some of that, or maybe it's all 
extremely justified and everybody's getting paid and you know the cost works out at the end of the day i i have no idea i'm not a financial dude but what i do know is the good thing about going to an art school if it's something you're considering or you're open to is that um it gives you a place and a time oftentimes if i don't have a, a deadline or something coming down the road or something due or a specific time, like let's say, oh, Tuesday at 9 a.m., you have a class to go to. You know, if it was just up to me and I'm sitting in my apartment or I'm doing whatever, it's like, okay, 9 p.m. on Tuesday. If I don't have a class scheduled, most likely I'm not just going to look up at 9 p.m. and be like, you know what? Let me do some art or let me like do some some graphic design research. <laughs> like it gives you a place and a time that you're supposed to be there and just attending and showing up. Um, sets forth the precedent that you're going to be learning today, you're working towards a goal today, and I, I don't know, maybe for some people that's not their preference. Maybe they do just have that drive alone and they don't need to schedule it out. And in that regard, I kind of envy those people, and that's super cool, but I tend to really adhere to routines and I enjoy having a time and a place. And the more I can structure things out, I think the more successful I am. Um, another question we had was, what do you wish someone would have told you mid program? So in the middle of art school, what do you, what do you wish somebody told you? Um, I wish somebody told me that the graphic design courses that I was studying, um, were going to be useful, but the way they're useful in the advertising industry isn't as creative as I once hoped. Um, once I started working in graphic design within advertising, I, uh, it, it was kind of creatively limiting to a certain extent. You know, when you're a young production designer, your, your only utility is, you know, being there on time, being able to crank out designs and you're getting handed an art direction from an art director or a creative director that your job is just to do what they tell you to do, which is okay. I mean, as a production designer, you're in an entry level role and that that's that's the role you're supposed to take part in, you know. You're supposed to just work hard, crank things out, hit deadlines. And um you know, I I feel like I just wasn't the best production designer. I am more of the type where I'm a little bit more idea centric and I I like to come up with ideas, come up with concepts and just plain working on production wasn't really my strong suit. I mean, I could do it. I could crank I could work pretty hard and get a lot of stuff cranked out, but I think where I lacked was the attention to detail that production design requires. I mean, you really have to have an eye for proofreading and a lot of that stuff that, I mean, I didn't really do all that much proofreading and whatnot through college, so it wasn't a tool that I had sharpened that much. Um, through working in my graphic design um, corporate job outside of school, I, I was able to sharpen a little bit more of a um, of a fine tooth sword, I suppose, where you can like better proofread stuff, but dude, I'm still not that good at it, to be honest with you. It's, you know, it's one of those things, if you can delegate that to somebody else and say, Hey, I wrote all this stuff. Can you look through it and let me know if it makes sense? Let me know if there's typos. Cool. Cool. I'm more of an ideas guy. And when I saw the path through, um, graphic design being that, you know, from a, from a production designer, 
the next thing you can become this this is just within the ad agency that i was kind of working within so maybe structures are completely different in other places but from what i've been able to understand it's you become a production designer you work that job for two three four five years and then you get promoted to being an art director and an art director then basically is doing the same type of work i mean they do production type work as well but they also have a little bit more of a hand in the creative and they can make some more decisions they can make more creative decisions um but the main the main person at the agency on the creative side is the creative director and typically these are relatively older men and women who have been in the ad agency world for quite some time you know they they've done their time they've they've cashed in they've really they've really busted their butt to learn how the, the industry works work on a wide array of pro- projects have a pretty extensive client list and they essentially lead and guide the creative which is awesome it's cool to have someone who works in your agency who like really knows the ins and outs of this stuff and can see the trends and they can dip and dive into them and out of them at a way that like you know they're producing work that's timely it's going to have a good impact and um yeah it, it was cool to work underneath those people but the issue for me was that i didn't want to have to be in my late 40s or something to be a creative director and start making creative decisions like i saw that timeline and i saw some people at the agency i was working with that i mean they'd been there forever and they were just like really a step above being a production designer and I, I don't know, something within me just said, like, I can't just stomach myself, like, kind of rotting away at an agency until I'm in my late 30s or, you know, uh, lower 40s to finally start making creative decisions. And by that point, you know, you're kind of a bitter, a bitter guy from the industry who's been beaten down and, you know, you, you kind of sold your soul to the industry a long time ago. Like, I met people like that and they're they're paying their bills i mean i understand they have families they have kids and that they're doing what they have to do and you know i have tremendous amount of respect for them for pushing through and and working in that industry it can definitely be pretty cutthroat but for myself i just i had to get out of there at a certain point and uh i don't know kind of take the reins on the creative a little bit because I can't just make other people's ideas for my entire life and be a very small cog in a big wheel or a big machine. I needed to to be a little bit more control of what I was doing. And uh, yeah, I kind of found pretty quickly after graphic design school and working in advertising that advertising wasn't really for me. Um, I'm, I'm glad I did it and it was a great opportunity, but I found out I'm a little bit more of an artist than a designer. And I think those two oftentimes are indistinguishable for most people but now that i've kind of dipped my toes in both paths i think being an artist feels a little bit closer to my my regular personality um than just kind of cranking out graphic design work but i mean i'm I'm immensely grateful from working at that place working with those people all of them are extremely driven extremely talented and um yeah it was it was it was a blessing to be able to work at a place like that um Let's see, what other questions? Um, one question that I got was, let's see, talk about being colorblind because I've been finding more and more artists are colorblind. So for those of you that don't know, I am colorblind, which 
is a little bit of a tricky term. Oftentimes people think being colorblind means, oh, they just, they're blind to seeing any color, which I don't know if that's even a real thing. Being full on like black and white colorblind, I'm not sure, but I do know from what I've been able to understand that colorblindness is, I think it's an, it's an issue with your cones in your eyes trying to perceive color in a certain way. And like, I guess the cones get the signals crossed or something like that. Um, so long story short, I am red, green, colorblind, which it's not just red and green that are the issue. Really that, that red, green color mishap starts to affect a a wide array of other colors. Um, there's times where like a deep purple ends up looking like a, like a deep blue. There's times where, I mean, I've even seen, I remember being a kid and um, I would go to Steak and Shake with my family, and they had these, like, gumball machines. You drop a quarter in there, you spin the gumball, and then it, like, spins down this whole little, this whole little, I don't even know what to call it, like a little uh, a little slide, the gumball just bounces down. And then at the bottom, it's really low to the ground, because if you're a little kid, you can get the piece of gum. But I remember I put a quarter in, I pulled the little thing, and the gumball started going around, and I was like, oh, sweet. I, th- I think I thought it was lemon or something. I was like, oh, lemon, heck yeah. Like, I love the green ones. I'm, I'm super excited for this. My dad was watching me just like, uh. And then once the gumball got there at the bottom, I grabbed it and I was excited because I thought it was green. I put it in my mouth and I chewed down on it and I was like, ew, this is orange. I hate orange. <laughs> and my dad just laughed because I had no idea that it was orange the whole way down the chute. I seriously thought it was green the entire time. And so... Ever since I was a little kid, there were always weird little things like that that would happen. Um, One time, we were driving back up from, I think, Alabama or something, back towards Indianapolis. And there was this huge crane manufacturing place. And they had these massive cranes. And uh, I swear, it was like acres and acres of huge cranes. They must have been like a crane-selling business. And they were all painted orange. And... um, or no, I think they were all they were all some color. I can't for the life of me remember what it was. But I thought they were green, and they definitely weren't. And I told my parents from the back of the car, like, wow, that is a lot of green cranes. And they just died laughing because, you know, if you're not colorblind, those types of color perceptions are, like, strikingly inaccurate. <laughs> um, so speaking in regards to art school, I also had to take a class called uh, Color Theory. Or no, color concepts is what it was. And those of you who know me and have worked with me in the past have probably heard the story. But for those of you who haven't, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna dive into the story here real quick for you. In color concepts, they had us do this thing where um, our our color concepts professor said that there's this website to go to and there's this small little color survey. And on this color survey, there's a bunch of a bunch of color blocks in like a row and you're supposed to use your mouse and like you click on a color block and then you can drag it to different areas in the line so like for instance you'll have a bunch of reds and yellows and they're all mixed in order and you're supposed to grab the blocks and move them to where it's a smooth gradation from red to yellow and then underneath that there's like blue and purple you're supposed to do a smooth gradation of blue to purple um, and it, it goes through maybe 13 or 14 different of these 
you know, little color lists that you're supposed to rearrange the colors. And then at the end, you're supposed to hit submit. And it'll give you a, like a, a scale of the amount that you missed. And it, it, it's kind of like golf where the in order to do the best job, you want to have the lowest score because the more of these that you, you guess wrong and you put the boxes in the wrong area, that ends up adding to your score. And you don't want that. So I think there were people in my class who were finishing the survey. And mind you, this survey was not for a grade. It was purely just for our professor to see like where our color perception is at and you know, maybe pinpoint some problem students who maybe struggle with some of this stuff. And so a lot of the kids in my class, they're, they're finishing the survey and they're like, oh, I got four. And one kid's like, oh, I got a 13. And um, this one girl was like, I think I got an eight. And everyone was like, wow. Um, I think one other girl got maybe like a seven or a five or something like a lot of low scores. And then, um, I think one dude was like, yeah, I got like a 33 and like everyone was kind of clowning on him. Like, Oh, 33, like, dang dude. Like that, that's not, that's not that good. Like, how did you, how did you miss so many? And like this whole time I was hearing this, I'm still over there on this color website, clicking around with these color boxes. Cause I, I can barely see what's going on. And I hit submit, and um, my friend turns around and is like, Nick, what did you get? And I was like, I got 132. And literally everybody in our class turned around and was like, what? Even my professor was like, what, 133 or 132 or whatever the score was. It was remarkably higher than everybody else. And um, my professor just walked over and was like, hey, um, are you colorblind? And I was like, yes, <laughs> I've been really colorblind since I was a kid. I struggle out a lot with reds and greens, blues and purples, um, sometimes pinks and gray. And she was like, okay, well, you know, we're going to be working pretty closely this semester. And um, she told me that if I want to succeed in the class and if I want to learn color theory, even though I'm colorblind, she suggested a couple textbooks to me. And um, so I went to the library at school, picked up these textbooks, and I really, really started delving deep into color theory, reading a lot about color history, and trying to just learn the ins and outs of why certain colors invoke certain emotion, um, what sort of social movements and historical movements are tied to certain colors, and how those colors make people feel, or um, you know how to lead people's eyes using color, how to contrast with color. And, um, you know, what is things like simultaneous contrast and like just a whole wide array of color stuff that I, I never really knew before. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, it was a, it was a fun class at the end of the day. It was pretty difficult for me, but I got through it. I passed color concepts being colorblind, which I can proudly say at this point. Um, so, yeah, um, let me see. Explain how being colorblind affects your artwork these days. Um, I tend to do very bold colors, very loud, like super saturated, vibrant colors. Um, ever since I was a kid, for some odd reason, I can see blue, like blue is extremely vibrant to me, as well as orange, like blue and orange are super duper duper vibrant through my eyes. And so Ever since I was a kid, blue and orange have, have been those tones I can really pinpoint and be like, with full confidence, that's blue, or that is orange. 
And so a lot of my artwork actually revolves around these similar tones um, in that I choose a lot of deep blues, a lot of very saturated blues. Um, I also started getting involved with like using different forms of orange because for the longest time I just thought orange was just orange. And then I realized, you know, there's a lot, there's a wide array of oranges. You've got like rustic oranges, uh, deep rust orange, and then you've got on the lighter end things like coral and, uh, you know, on the more yellow side, you've got peach. And so I, I started learning and a lot of credit for this goes to my girlfriend, Courtney, because, you know, she's not colorblind and she's very color, um, very color versed in a lot of different tones and, and she has a good eye for that stuff. So she's kind of become the person who I can say, Hey, what color is that over there? And she's like, Oh, well basically, and she's, she's a graphic designer as well. And I actually met her at art school. And so her and I both have the knowledge of color concepts and color theory. So if I ask her, Hey, what color is the sunset over there? Um, <laughs> I give her a lot of respect cause I ask a lot of times and she can go, well, like she'll really break it down for me. She's like, that color is kind of a, <clears throat> a high value peach, like relatively light peach, but it's leaning a little bit more into the orange hue and it's like middle saturation. And, um, <clears throat> through being a graphic designer and using Photoshop and illustrator, there's the color picker thing that like, Wow, I just sounded so country. Said, man, yeah, right there, man, there's a color picker thing. <laughs> that, that little thingy with the color picker, man, that's what, that's what it is. Um, there's the little segment where you pick colors from, and you kind of drag your mouse around and can select whatever hue, select whatever value, and whatever saturation of, of the different stuff you have. So my girlfriend has enabled a way for her and I to speak as if we're referencing that exact uh, color picker. And so she's definitely helped me learn new colors I never really had seen before. You know, if we walk past a flower or something, she's like, oh, that's a very high saturation purple. Uh, and it leans a little bit blue purple. And I'm like, oh, cool. Because with my own eyes, I just, I really struggle to pick up on those subtleties. But it's kind of like, if someone can explain it to me through the hue and the value and the saturation, then I can kind of be like, oh, okay. Now that you say that, I do see a little bit of blue in there. Whereas before, I probably would have walked right past this and just been like, yeah, it's either blue or purple. I don't really know. Um, so <clears throat> being colorblind definitely affects my work in that sometimes I try to stick with colors that I'm used to and colors that I can definitely see. But I like to delve into colors I really struggle with too. Like within the gray color range, anywhere around like, um, like very neutral taupe, and super desaturated blues, like kind of room colors where colors are off-white with a little hint of yellow or a little hint of blue. Or when you have a, a gray that is middle value and it's super desaturated, but it also has a hint of blue or a hint of purple, man, I cannot see that stuff. I literally, it is 100% gray. And the best way that I've been able to explain colorblindness, which going back to what I said, more likely aligns with the term color deficient, I guess. Um, being color deficient makes it to where the full visible spectrum of color basically is limited in that you're pushing a lot of these super vibrant colors, like, I mean, probably all colors. You're basically toning those all down with saturation. So 
all of the, the colors in the visual spectrum are just a little bit more dull. Which I know can sound kind of sad, but if it's all you've seen your whole life, I mean, you don't really know. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really affect you that much. I mean, the more people talk about it, they're like, oh, that's really sad. Then you're like, damn, it is pretty sad now that I sit here and think about it. But um, what I was saying was, if you push more colors to be desaturated, the colors that already are desaturated, like these neutral gray blues and these colors that are very close to gray already with a hint of another hue in there, all of those just get pushed to full-on gray. You know, when you're colorblind, you can barely find the the original hue of a color. Um, so, yeah, that's just a little insight into what being colorblind is like, and it's it's kind of a bizarre landscape of how to approach art when you have a, you know, deficiency in being able to perceive it. Um, so I like to produce art that is going to appeal to people who are colorblind. I like to use the colors that colorblind people can see um, because those colors always resonated with me as a kid. Um, as well as, I think, when you do produce murals with those colors, they're very contrasting colors, like blue and orange, blue and deep reds. Like, it's all very, very vibrant. So I think even to regular-sighted people seeing murals with those contrasting colors is like whoa that's pretty bold of a color choice um and honestly some of my murals may be a bit you know unappealing for regular sighted people i'm not sure but I i'd like to think i've done enough color research and color study to to know which colors to use and try to do them in a way that doesn't look garbage or doesn't look terrible um Another question we had is, have you ever had big moments in your art career, and what are they? Um, I'm still new in the art career realm. I, I've, Like I said, I've only been a studio artist and a, a mural artist full-time for about a year and a half-ish. Um, but I've definitely had some cool experiences. I remember I had a graphic design professor... Um, his name is blanking on me. Uh, Sam Vasquez was his name. Sorry. I was trying to recall his last name. I knew his first name was Sam. But yeah, so Sam Vasquez was um, my buddy Nathan's graphic design professor. And um, Sam Vasquez is a graffiti writer from New York City from the 80s. And he was around during, you know, the, the, the 80s graffiti boom in New York. And he met a lot of very influential people through that movement. And so... Somehow or other, he ended up being a professor at the Heron School of Art and Design, and Nathan had a class with him. And so uh, the Indianapolis Museum of Art, a.k.a. Newfields, um, was going to put on a graffiti exhibit that has been traveling all around the world. So I think this graffiti exhibit was in like Spain, New York City, L.A., Paris, and, like all these different places. And for some odd reason, I don't know how they did it, but... For some reason, they were going to do one in little old Indianapolis. And uh, this graffiti exhibit featured a whole lot of really cool art stuff from some of graffiti's early founders, um, some of the first graffiti writers. They had photographs, they had old paintings, old sketchbooks, and this exhibit just uh, showed a whole lot of that stuff. And the exhibit wanted to do like a mural installation outside of the art gallery where, you know, as different patrons and different people came into the exhibit, they, you know, they had some cool art installation that would greet people as they walk into the show. And um, the IMA asked Sam Vasquez, hey, man, would you be interested in painting this mural? 
um, you know, since you're from New York City and you're from that time, um, would you be down to do something like that? And very humbly, he let them know, hey, um, I think he had other things that he was working on with the IMA too, but he told them, I think it would be better if you had you know, some younger members of the graffiti movement here in Indianapolis. I mean, granted, this exhibition is going to be in Indianapolis. It would be cool if some up-and-coming graffiti writers who are pretty active right now could, you know, kind of be given a spotlight how some of these New York City artists long, long, long ago had a spotlight too. So um, Sam put us in contact with the museum, and we worked together to form a design and a design concept. And I mean, it was crazy because like, Going from just being a kid painting graffiti out in the streets, um, painting all kinds of random stuff, and not really making any money or doing any murals. Th- this was while I was still in graphic design school, and I, I hadn't even considered doing murals as as a job or anything at all. I was literally just in graphic design school. And um, when the IMA said that they would they would pay my friend Nathan and I to do this mural, we were like, "Whoa, painting in a museum." in an art museum like us <laughs> like who are we to who are we to be painting in here and like it, it was quite a trip because once we got the design finalized and the paint arrived and you know when you show up to an art museum in your city like the biggest art museum in the city and um you know they give you a box of all the spray paint you're going to use for the day and then you you know you walk in the elevator the elevator goes up to the second floor where this huge wall is at that we were painting and, you know, the elevator goes ding, and you walk through, like, these crazy art exhibits. And then you end up in front of this wall. And me and my friend Nathan were like, dude, we cannot mess this one up. <laughs> like, we need to come correct. We need to do whatever our best is is what we need to try to do because this is a crazy opportunity. And oftentimes those opportunities go to people in our city who, you know, they've been around for a long time. They've done a crazy amount of good work. So... I think we were thrown a very lucky bone to have that that mural job, and um, it was a blast, man. It was a really pivotal moment in my life to be able to participate in that and definitely pushed that you can do murals and, and your art has an effect on people. It's not just living out you know, in these dirty areas of the city where graffiti can just kind of chill and not be bothered. I mean, this was like my parents showed up. My grandma showed up and like for the first time my family was like, oh, Nick is doing something with art, whatever that is. And like this is a cool thing to go see. So that was super fun and it was a huge, huge, huge moment in my art career. Um, And I've just kind of been trying to ride that vibe ever since then and and try to put good stuff out there since. Um, Have you ever felt really crappy after having a big moment in your art career? Huh. That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, typically after you have a big moment, it feels good. It feels nice. It feels like you're, you've accomplished something or you're moving towards a goal. Um, in terms of feeling crappy after a big moment, I would say if you do a big job that's worth quite a bit of money and you feel like you're like, okay, like, cool. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm finally inching along and making progress here maybe a month or two past that when your email's dry you've hit up a bunch of people you've gotten a bunch of no's a bunch of people that are like yeah you know we love your art it's amazing but we don't have the budget for it you know it's it's two months after those big projects that you're like dang okay now what do we do here 
What's what's the next step? What's the next plan? And I think if you can use that as fuel, you know, you can push yourself to that next big moment. Um, one anecdote I wrote down here to chat about is, um, and I got a lot of questions in my DM about this, is, you know, how do you become a mural artist? How do you get your first mural? How do you... How do you get someone to pay you to paint a mural? Like, it's kind of a crazy thing to, to try to do. Um, convince someone with money to pay you to do whatever you want to do. Like, it's it's a bit strange. Um, and the best analogy I can, I can try to pinpoint to explain this is... Um, I kind of thought about this about my dad because my dad used to be a mechanic. He worked on cars, loved working on fixing things. And... Um, as I was trying to analogize this for people who asked me this question before, the best way I could come up with it was instead of being a mural artist, let's let's try to use the example of being a mechanic. If you want to become a mechanic and um, someone has a broken car, okay, let's say your next door neighbor, their car's broken, you know, they, they know you relatively well, but um, they've got a little bit of trust in you, but they don't know how well you can fix a car. They don't know if you've fixed cars before. And maybe you've never fixed a car. Maybe it's just a thought that you have that would be like, oh, it'd be cool to work on cars. But it's really hard for someone to trust you to work on their car if you have no example of anything you've ever fixed before. It's like, yeah, man, uh, you want me to fix your car? I don't know how cars work. <laughs> You're never going to get that car fixing job with that with that narrative. And so it really takes working on your first car, maybe maybe your car that you have tinker with it, try to learn it, try to figure it out. And, um, I think painting murals is kind of that same thing. You know, it's, it's a, it's a hard stretch for a client to, to grant you approval and pay you to do something if you don't have anything to show. Um, and so as I was delving into being a mural artist and an artist here in Indianapolis, I realized this conundrum is a bit, um, it, it's just a bit of a conundrum landing your first mural job here in the city. Um, there's a lot of established mural artists here that, you know, they do a lot of work. They've been doing a lot of work. And so when big jobs come through, I mean, those people get those first phone calls. Um, there's also a lot of, you know, high stakes mural work that does get done here in the city. And a lot of that money goes through the Arts Council, which is awesome. Um, it's great that there's an Arts Council in our city that does the hard work, gets the permits, and, you know, really does it right. Um but what I ended up finding was a lot of these high paying jobs and not all of them, mind you, but a lot of them that, you know, there would be an open call to all artists for this job. And, um, time after time after time. And I just kept seeing these mural jobs go to people from New York city, people from LA, people from Europe. And there's just these huge mural projects in our city that are getting painted by people who aren't even from here which is good and bad. I mean, it's great to expose our local art community and just our civilians in our city to stuff that's not from here. Um, and it kind of can, I think the goal is to, is to put Indianapolis on the map as a place that has like modern contemporary big art from famous artists and whatnot. But I found it be to be a little bit limiting for artists who are in Indy and they're trying to start doing murals. And myself was in that school too. I'd done a few murals, but I really didn't have, I didn't really have enough murals to land any big jobs. 
And so along the lines of the the mechanic narrative, myself and other artists just needed a car to work on, if, if, if that makes sense. Like we needed a space or a location where we, we could put some murals up. We could maybe do them off of our own dime. And we could just paint what, what we want and try to do it in a way where we have a portfolio example. And um, I don't know, at this time in being a mural artist, I was still super new to it. And I, you kind of feel a little bit alone, like you're in your own your own process out there trying to be a mechanic without working on cars. It's like, where do you go to? I try to talk to someone who's a mechanic and they don't really give me that good at, you know, I, I ask if I could shadow a mechanic or if I can help out and that mechanic never called me back. And it's kind of the same thing in the mural world. Like if there's someone who's established, definitely reach out to them. See if you can help them do a big project, if they need to finish it quicker, if you can be an assistant. Um, I, I tried that and some of these people didn't hit me up. They never took me up on that offer. And I mean, I would have just been a sponge and I would have listened and learned as much as I possibly could. But I felt kind of alone at the time. And um, due to this reason, I started a little bit more getting involved in the arts community here in Indianapolis. Um, I've never really been that like gallery dude who goes to every gallery show and like, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of an oddball in that regard. I think I'm a bit extroverted, but I'm not really a big partier. Um, and galleries sometimes feel like a bit of a party to me sometimes. I don't know. I'm still super new to the, the gallery scene and everything anyways. But um, I still wanted to like promote other artists and, and connect businesses with artists in the area. Um, there was this artist from L.A. slash New York who she came through Indianapolis at a certain point and um, she was doing some mural works that are a bit satirical in nature, um, a little bit parody-like, and um, she was getting a lot of press for a lot of those murals, and um, some of it was, a, you know, it's kind of cheeky, it's kind of hip, and um, it's it's very current, which is what I, I do like about her artwork, um, and, um, you know, she painted a mural or two in town that I mean, she's from a different place. And so when she comes and does her artwork in Indianapolis, people have never really seen anything like that here. And they've never had art that's maybe offensive on purpose, which is what some of her artwork is. I mean, it's it's aimed at poking at people and, and kind of getting people to squirm a little bit, which is a testament to kind of what some of her stuff is. I mean, I, I personally don't approach my art that way. You know, I want my art to be digestible for everybody and not really um, put people into... You know, I, I, I try to stray from doing extremely hot debated topics in my artwork. Um, I want my art to be a bit of a, a resolute and a, a peaceful place for people to see versus something that could kind of get people riled up. But nonetheless, um, some of her murals got censored here. And, you know, I think a bunch of people wrote in and said, you know, hey, we don't want this art here. This is really you know, not what our community stands for and whatnot, which I mean, I guess it's the community's prerogative as to monitor some of the stuff that goes on. But there were a lot of people in Indianapolis who were like, dang, they literally censored art. And like some of these people live in these arts districts and they're thinking, you know, I like art, you know, whether I disagree with art or not, art should be allowed to be in our city. And if somebody came to our city and painted here, cool. I mean, that's art in the city. We need more of that anyway. So I think a lot of people in our city were just like, you know what, if they're going to censor her, 
I mean, I don't have a whole lot of money, but you know what? I have a garage door or I have a front door or I have a chair or a trash can or a dumpster. And you know what? I'll pay her to come paint my dumpster. <laughs> and so it was weird because a lot of artists, myself included, are sitting back and watching our entire city literally hire this one lady who's not from here to just paint like anything. I mean, dude, people were just like, I swear people would have been like, I mean, my arm isn't tattooed if you want to tattoo my, like they were finding anything. And, and I think indie is, is very cool for doing this too. You know, when they do have something they're passionate about, the whole city really rallies behind it and pushes it. Um, and so they hired her to paint so much stuff um, on a level where, and props to her. I mean, she stuck around, she busted her butt, she painted a lot. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much she was getting paid for each mural, but a lot of local artists in our city were starting to feel a little bit bummed because, oh, this, this lady who's not from here is getting all this shine. And, you know, I wanted to paint that wall too, but the business owner just hired her. And like, I don't know, there was all kinds of drama involved. And, um, you know, there were also some local businesses who were saying things like, you know, hey, you know, we hire her just because we like art and, and we wanted art here. And, um, sorry about that. That was the mail. Um, my mail just arrived. Um, some people were saying the business owners were like, um, I completely lost my train of thought. That mail literally scared the crap out of me. <laughs> the, the, the mail lady arrives at like 1130 each day and I was not preparing that. Um, anyways, I don't even know if you could hear that on the microphone. Yeah. The business owners were saying things along the lines of, you know, um, you know, where are the local artists? I mean, you guys are all upset and everything, but where are you? You know, if you want to paint, you should be hitting us up. You should be getting in contact with us. And, um, I don't know. It kind of left a bad taste in my mouth hearing that because there's a lot of women and men that are out there working very hard, sending a lot of emails out. Um, and so I wanted to provide like a platform and a place for some of these artists to, uh, to really have a place to shine and, and have a spot to do their, their murals and whatnot um, and, and find a way for business owners to actually find an artist who they'd want to work with and hire them. And so this sparked an idea with myself, um, this girl named Jordan, and this guy named Levi. So the three of us um, started the first Indie Mural Fest, um, which isn't the first festival for murals in Indianapolis, but it, we just coined the term Indie Mural Fest as like, I mean, we played around with a lot of different ideas. Um, and the goal of this mural fest was to allow a space for local artists only to be able to produce their first mural or, you know, a mural of their choice at a, at a wall where the, the business owner will give full full consent to let the artist do whatever they want so long as it's not extremely offensive and going to piss people off. And, um, you know, it was crazy because... Um, some of the walls that we were going to use for the mural fest were just like graffiti walls that had been used for decades and decades. And the business owner was on board with like, yeah, whatever you guys want to paint back here, like by all means, feel free. And, um, you know, those walls since have returned to looking more graffiti like now. Um, but those walls are, are free permission walls for anybody to paint. And whether it's graffiti or not, <clears throat> it's a space where creatives can just kind of flex and do whatever they want there. And, um, so we, we put an open call out there 
just like arts councils and whatnot or businesses do saying, hey, we're doing this thing called the Indie Mural Fest. If you're a local artist and you want to paint a mural, <clears throat> you know, we have a spot for you. And uh, I think we were originally going to try to curate it and, and limit it to a certain amount of people, but we ended up having, I think we had 53 local artists who were interested in painting. And all of those artists came out and pretty much painted. Um, so in one day we went from, you know, some of our, some of us artists feeling a bit, uh, disenfranchised or sort of like let down by some of the business practices, hiring this one person to now all of us local artists are on board. We're there. It's a cold October morning and everybody's painting. Um, it was so cool to see the local art community come together and just do this, you know, super duper grassroots, um, we raised a bit of funding. I mean, I don't come from a whole lot of money and I don't have an ability to like pay all these artists what they really deserve to be paid. But, you know, I am an artist just like they are. So um, I think it's really on the shoulders of people who are investors and people who do believe in the arts to actually fund programs like what we were doing. Um, and I think it's much easier to sit back and be like, yeah, you know, it's art should never be you know, free or artists should always get paid their fair share. But, you know, if you are an artist and you don't have a bunch of money, why not do whatever you can with what you have? Um, it's not really my responsibility to, um, I don't want to say responsibility, but, uh, I don't know when I hear things like people don't want to take part in anything. If the artists aren't getting paid their fair share, I totally, I totally get that. I hear that. But, um, if you want artists to get paid a fair share and you have the money sitting around to help fund stuff like that, start the conversation. Let's make it happen instead of kind of poo-pooing other people's ideas and, and artists doing grassroots stuff. Um, but anyhow, um, it was great to see all these different artists paint their murals. And um, I think we even had a young artist who was like, I think his name is Everett and he painted, I think he was like 12 years old or something. And he, he painted his first mural ever. And it was like this anime character. Um, we had a, a wide array of, of male and female artists, as well as, um, you know, a lot of artists who painted their first mural ever, you know, they've been painting canvases and they've been, you know, working full-time jobs and painting canvases at night when they have time or, you know, making prints. And they heard about the mural fest and were like, you know what, I love murals and I would love to paint one. And so what was really cool is when we started this goal of just wanting to connect businesses with artists and try to promote, you know, artists in our own community, um, I was hoping this would be some folks's um, first car to be a mechanic on and that from that first car they work on, they will, they will land other jobs in the future. And cool enough, I did hear from a lot of different artists who painted in the mural fest that you know, hey, I painted my first mural here and um, I posted a picture of the mural online and this guy who lives in a different state saw it and he loved it. And now they're paying me and flying me out to come paint a mural in this new, in this new state I've never even been to. And, um, you know, that'll be my second mural. And a lot of the artists were extremely, extremely thankful of like, you know what, thank you for giving us this opportunity. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with them. I'm in their shoes. I know how they feel about some of this stuff too. You know, if somebody came to me when I was first starting out as a mural artist and was like, Hey, you know, we have just enough money to pay for some of your supplies, but we have a 20 foot by 20 foot wall and you can paint whatever you want on it. 
We're not going to tell you what to do. The business owner is not going to tell you what to do. You can literally paint the best thing you can paint and spend as much time on it as you want. And uh, we're going to try to cover some of your costs. Dude, my brain would have exploded. And so I was trying to create a place for artists to have that jump off point. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit of a, a little bit of runoff into the Indie Mural Fest, giving a little bit of extra context. Um, we ended up towards the end of October doing the second Indie Mural Fest, and it was way more DIY, and especially due to COVID, limited funding, um, a whole lot of partnerships kind of fell through due to due to COVID and whatnot. So we really just did it like DIY, artist by artist. And I think we had maybe nine or so people show up and we just kind of painted murals in one day, um, kind of over the weekend. I think it was maybe two or three days. And yeah, we just played some music, painted, had some donuts. Uh, thank you to, um, I think it's Matt and his girlfriend brought us donuts. And yeah, it was just a fun time hanging with the artist. And I mean, honestly, that's what it's really about. Um, let's see, what other topics do we have? Um, where do ideas come from? That's a pretty interesting question. Um, I don't really know where ideas come from, but they, I think ideas are a conglomeration of past experiences that like certain signals in your brain get crossed and certain experiences like kind of bounce around in there. And then when they collide, there's like a little spark of like a new thought or a new idea you hadn't really considered before. Um, and when I was speaking earlier about when I was working at my graphic design job, I feel like I, I progressed so much as an artist um, through working there because of some of the resistance I had towards some of the work I was doing, which sounds a bit weird, but... When you put yourself in a difficult scenario and you really limit your time creatively and you, you, it's kind of like a pressure creates diamonds type of a deal where the more, the more time you don't have to do what you want and the more you're kind of time pressed and the more pressure you're under and deadlines you have. I mean, there were times where I was so busy doing production design stuff and I mean, I couldn't even really think of my fine art stuff and murals or anything at all, but you know, if I just completed a task and I literally have a brief moment before I need to start the next task and I have a pen and paper, I could literally, in that moment of brief time, when I'm really tight on time, actually, that's when some of my best ideas actually showed up, which is a bit weird. Because, like, I feel like it's a, a bit glorified where you're like, yes, as an artist, you know, you need this pristine studio. And you need all the time in the world to just sit and think. And that's when your best ideas arrive. But for me, it was literally like, I'm busy. I'm stressed out. I don't have a lot of time. And just to keep my sanity, I'm just going to sketch this quick thing that's going to take maybe 10 seconds on paper. Just this idea popped up and it's just like, bleh, I just get it out. And sometimes that idea is like extremely refined. It's, well, maybe not refined, but it's extremely like, poignant to where you want to go and what you want to do because it lacks all of the nonsense of like overthinking and over conceptualizing and you're really plotting out colors or you're trying to do pull all these inspirations together like when you when you have those brief idea moments it's super crucial to capture them because those ideas are so pure of 
Like there's no, there's no BS involved. It literally just, that idea just like, it just pops out real quick. And there, it's not, it's not super criticized. Your brain isn't overthinking and talking yourself out of it. It's just boom. This is, this is the idea that you needed to have all this time. Um, so that's been a cool experience for me because I definitely had a different conception of where ideas come from. Um, it was, it was super rad to be able to understand that ideas kind of come out of pressure. Um, let's see. Another topic some people wanted me to touch on was just, uh, you know, Instagram and the business of Instagram with art. Oh, where to begin? Um, I think Instagram is the new shopping mall and it's kind of gross. <laughs> Instagram used to be kind of, I mean, I don't want to sound super hipster, but it was, it was a little bit more pure in its early years where it was all timeline based. There weren't ads every five posts trying to get you to buy something. Like I feel like Instagram anymore. Oh, it's like, it's just everybody yelling at you to buy stuff and everyone's screaming their like political stuff down your throat and people on both sides throwing poop at each other. Like it's just, maybe it's not Instagram. I mean, I'm sure Twitter and Facebook are kind of both. I mean, shoot, I don't even, I don't even go to Facebook for real. I think Facebook has just become so toxic for so many people. Um, so and I, I just think social media in general, I mean, there's a lot of great things with social media. There's people who are maybe disenfranchised or they don't have much of a community. And, you know, there's great people you can connect with online. And I've definitely fostered and actually met people who I've just spoken to online. And it's pretty cool when things can come full circle like that. But um, I don't know. I think I think once algorithms were put in place and... uh You've got just like an endless feed of stuff that this algorithm thinks that you want to look at. Like those of you who don't know what the social media algorithms are or what their purpose is, um, essentially it's the social media companies created like a, like a pseudo math equation that, um, these social media apps, they look at all the things that you like. They look at all the things you comment on. They even time how long you look at certain things. And they take into account the people you talk to, the people who you engage with, and then um, the social media algorithm basically curates stuff that it knows you already engage with and gives you more of that. So it's kind of like, I mean, if I like eating ice cream, and it's like if I had a personal like chef around who had no regard for my health and didn't care if it was fancy food or trashy food that I was eating... And it saw me eat ice cream and was like, oh, this ice cream is so good. Like, I just love this. It's like they're just taking note and they'll just feed me ice cream constantly. And so I feel like social media for a lot of people is just people eating just like a terrible, like, content diet, if that makes sense. I think it's even been equated to as that with some folks have referred to it as like your your digital diet. Um, and it just, it becomes quite a bit of people just getting regurgitated with the same stuff. So... Um, it's also a little bit shady when you try to do a post and um, an algorithm will just bury it. Like if it doesn't get a certain amount of comments or it doesn't get a certain amount of engagement within a certain amount of time, 
um, Instagram and some of these social media apps, they'll just be like, well, this post didn't perform properly, so bury it. And they'll just hide it back behind a bunch of other stuff and videos of cats or videos of people yelling at each other, people, you know, fighting. Those things will just rise to the occasion because there's lots of people commenting and freaking out about it. So I don't know. Uh, someone asked, if, is social media important? Um, I definitely think it is, but I don't know. I'm starting to wonder if there needs to be like some new type of social media where, I mean, dude, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I dip into Instagram occasionally. I mean, I'll post some stuff, but really I'm kind of from the mindset of like post it and expect it to fail and don't have high expectations for it because anymore you're not in control of the engagement you get. You know, you have to tiptoe and play these games that these social media companies want you to do so that your post is, you know, granted exposure to the world. And like, oh, you've made it on the explore page because we've, you know, people blessed you enough that it can finally reach new people. Like, ah, it's nonsense. And so, I mean, my, my best suggestion is try to find a way to get people to your website, get people to you know, do a mailing list of some sort. I know that's beneficial for some artists and, you know, maybe do a podcast yourself and find a way to where you don't have to rely on these social media companies so much for dictating your success and, you know, find a way to just do what you want to do. And and don't, don't feel like you have to cramp your style and, and bend over backwards so that it can work on a social media platform. You know, I mean, if you want to be social media, um, successful. I mean, most of your canvases will have to be, you know, that square format so that it fits the Instagram algorithm nicely and looks good on people's phone screens. But screw that. I mean, dude, if you want to paint like eight foot long by two foot tall canvases and that's the style you want to do, man, do it. Rock with it. I mean, who cares what social media wants you to do? In in the end, it's it's real life what matters anyway. So trying to find a way to be more real on Instagram will be beneficial for your art practice. Um, but yeah, social media is important. It's important to network with people. And um, I don't know, I think social media is just like such a new, such a new experiment in the human psyche. And it gets very convoluted and very heated and very dangerous. <laughs> and like, I don't know, I guess myself personally, I want my Instagram page and whatever stuff I put out to be, like I said earlier, like some form of a resolute and like a a little bit of escapism from the, the craziness that is the internet these days. I mean, honestly, today is a prime example of like, the world seems like absolute chaos. Like if you get on your phone, it just, it feels like white noise. It's just everyone's yelling at each other. Everybody's mad everybody's ticked off everyone's thinks that they're right and everyone else is wrong um and it can just be such a freaking destructive place i mean you have a bunch of people pointing fingers at you telling you you need to do this or you need to say this and given your place and what you do you need to say this and like i don't know man i i want to be a calm force in the world and not like a bossy rude force telling people what to do um you know and we live in the United States of America and it's a weird time to be an American these days, but, um, who knows? I mean, I, I, I have no idea. My social media approach could be completely inaccurate and off base and, you know, by all means, I'm sure someone out there will tell me, but 
who knows? I'm just trying to put good out there and be very personal with people, regardless of where people come from, who people are, what they do, where their incentives are. You know, just meet people where they're at and try to be helpful if you can. Um, and just try to make, I guess my goal is to make social media and what I put out there accessible for whoever. Um, you know, I don't want some socioeconomic status to dictate, you know, who can access my pieces, who can see my murals out there in the world. Um, you know, I want it to be accessible for people, whether you come from any different language. You know, I want my artwork to transcend standard language and uh, be void of representational stuff that pinpoints it in a certain area of culture. Um, I guess. Let's see. Um, I've got just a few more questions left, and then we'll be wrapping it up for today. I feel like I've rambled for quite some time. Um... What are your hobbies outside of art? Hmm. That's a good question by my friend Dusty. Uh, my hobbies outside of art are uh, a little bit of like filming and cinematography. I enjoy making videos. Um, definitely painting graffiti is like I would say my biggest passion outside of um, outside of doing murals and fine art stuff. Um, I'm also super into like very bizarre types of music. Like, uh, I've been kind of a metalhead for a long time. I really enjoy different types of metal music, the instrumentation and like some of the stuff musically that people can do with, you know, a guitar with some distortion and some complicated drum patterns is pretty interesting. Uh, so yeah, I like different types of music. Um, definitely like traveling. Always enjoy a good road trip seeing new new towns new cities um i also enjoy i mean especially during covid it's been kind of my saving grace just going on a country drive um, me and my girlfriend would just hop in the car and like i mean there's only so much you can do with covid anyway so i mean we'll just drive out to the middle of nowhere dude find a road that you've never been on and be like all right let's go there for a half hour and just see where we end up and like it's kind of fun when you live in the Midwest. You can just end up in a weird town that, I mean, no one typically, unless you live there, would ever really go there. And there's all these little diners and stuff that are in each town. And uh, it's been fun. Just kind of drive and, and learn more of your local area that's not just the downtown sectors where everybody else is at. You know, find find new stuff. Um, so I would say those are some of my, my hobbies. Um, favorite season and why? Dude, I'm one of those weird people. I like winter. I know. I know, it's weird, but I, I like winter. Um, I Especially when you're colorblind and you're, you know, it's there's a certain calm that comes over you, at least in my experience, when everything is just all like powder blue white. Like just the snow reflects the sky color and everything is super bright and it's all nice and neat and orderly. Like <laughs> I always enjoyed that as a kid and... um always enjoyed playing out in the snow have very good memories um me and my buddies pulling a pulling a sled behind a go-kart through our neighborhood growing up super duper fun um so yeah i'm always very fond of winter but i think summer and uh some of the other seasons are, are starting to grow on me you know i summer sometimes i mean it's a bit hot um but uh yeah i guess that's the answer to that question um, 
let's see what else. One question is, how do you reach out to the community to make art more accessible? Um, I've done a couple different community murals where it's it's one of those where, you know, I come up with the mural concept and I I talk with people and the business owners and the community beforehand when you do a concept um, to, to learn about the business, learn about the history of the area and, and try to do a mural that's crafted for for that specific area and um, as you paint if you can have others help or if you can have some community engagement um, I, I try to do that because I feel like you know a, a work can be a little bit longer lasting and, and have a bit more appreciation if there's some other folks involved um, but I think history is extremely important you know if you're going to install a mural somewhere on a building you should know where that building like where that building's story lies with the surrounding area and you know, was there influential people in the past who lived there who, you know, they have an interesting story worth being told. Um, my best example of this process is through my, the, the Bovaconti mural that I painted um, on my website. I think it's one of the, the higher ones on my page. It's like uh, teals and dark blues with some gold and yellow and orange. Um, but anyhow, this mural was going to be painted on this building that is in Fountain Square in Indianapolis. And um, the the name Bovacanti stems from the family who used to own the building a long time ago, and it was like this Italian family. They were um, they were jewelers, and they like do diamond cutting, and like you know they they did they did a bunch of stuff with diamonds, and they were kind of well known in the area and in the community um, for their business. And so the the people who own the building, uh, Justin and Minda, who are kind of the the leaders of Bovacanti. Um, they, they told me about the people who used to live there, or used to own the building, and uh, one of the guys who, I think the main guy who operated the jewelry business actually passed away, and so now that Justin and them have that building and they're going to do the coffee shop in there, they wanted to keep some of that history and um, continue that diamond motif and um, pay tribute to the family who used to own the business and, and keep that story still alive in that corner of Indy. And um, my mural design, I wanted to align with that. And I wanted to have small accents in the design that are kind of diamond-like. And, and, you know, there's all kinds of triangular prisms. And, um, you know, even the color schemes are somewhat diamond-related too. And there's little diamond accents like the address from a long ago. Um, the Bovacanti words were in like these like... Uh, these little diamond shapes and so the address on the building is inside the diamonds and we just kind of took the diamonds and sort of ran with it on the mural concept um and i think the local area and people who knew that business and people who know that story when they see that building now there's a there's a familiar sense that it's like oh this is this is a new story being told here but it's it's on the same storyline and i think that's super important with your murals is to know where your sense of place is and try to connect with the local community in, in some fashion. So yeah, I would say learn the local story and see what you can do with that. Um, let me see what other questions we've got. How do you approach pricing mural work? Good question. Um, I have been struggling with this question for a little while. It's, it's always kind of hard to do and it's, it's also different because different art markets have different pricing structures. So if you're an artist in New York City and you're in, you know, 
intermediate mural artist, you've been doing murals for maybe a couple years, um, and being an intermediate mural artist in New York City, given that the cost of living is pretty high out there and most jobs already just pay higher because there's, I don't know, just the expenses and stuff are just pretty wild out there. So you can actually charge a lot more per square foot for a mural if you're an artist in New York City, at least in theory. I I, I could be wrong on this, but I imagine being an artist in like the Midwest where the cost of living is pretty low, people don't have as much disposable income per se to just invest in huge budget art projects. Um, some artists in New York City may have a higher start out rate of what they can charge and it's it's more acceptable in New York because stuff by default is kind of more expensive. I'm not sure. That's just, you know, conceptually what I, what I think it to be like. But um, I would say... Uh, if you haven't done a mural before, see if you can just talk to business owners. See if there's someone in your family who owns a business and they have a wall that faces you know Main Street or something. Ask around. Um, people you know, just say, hey, I'm an artist. I'd love to paint a mural here. And um, I mean, the first couple of murals I painted, I just did them for free. I didn't make any money off of them. It was literally just to practice and, and be transparent with the client too. Let them know like, hey, never really done this before. So, you know, if you want to pay me what you feel like you can, that would be awesome. If you can at least maybe help cover the supply cost, um, that'll go a long way towards, um, being able to just have your first mural job and, and have, have stuff added to the portfolio. Um, so, um, let me see. Oh, sorry, we were talking about pricing. I was just trying to recall what the question was. Um, I charge anywhere in the ballpark of maybe $10 per square foot to $25 per square foot, maybe even $30, uh, depending on you know what the client's type of budgets are and uh, what the proposed concept is. So you know, if I had a client who was like, all right, Nick, we need you to paint a freaking uh, <clears throat> a leopard scene like a jungle scene with a leopard, a bunch of like a bunch of frogs and like extremely vibrant, um, plants and stuff. And like, it needs to be extremely dense. Like painting a mural like that is going to be extremely hard, <laughs> extremely time consuming. You're going to need so much supplies for different animals, different colors, different textures, uh, all kinds of brushes. I mean, it's going to be going to be pretty expensive. So maybe factor in the complexity of the design you're doing. You know, if someone asked me to paint that jungle scene, I mean, I don't do jungle scenes necessarily. Not that I couldn't do them, but if it's something way outside of your wheelhouse, maybe charge a little more for it if you know it's going to be kind of painstaking. Um, maybe up the square footage cost on that. Um, and then um, I've also given discounts on my pricing um, for like kind of a uh, creative, oh, what did I put it? I think it's either it's either creative freedom or um, I can't recall the exact term that I have for it. But basically, if, if the client, if you let the client know that if they can trust you with your decision and your design, and like they don't, if they give you full creative control of what the concept is, then they get an extremely discounted rate. So that way, you can ensure that you know maybe they'll let you just paint whatever you want, and they're okay with that, and they're willing to. Um, let you do that. And at that cost, you can give them a bit of a deal because it's kind of a way of saying, you know, hey, thank you for trusting that you can 
believe in my vision and that I can do this mural job properly. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers that question. Um, there's definitely more questions that I have here. Um, but I think given our time, I don't know how long this has run for. Let me see. Yeah, this has been for an hour. I just talked for a freaking hour. It's ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I think we'll wrap it up today. Um, this is abstract podcast number two. I appreciate all of you who've listened. Um, let me know what podcast platforms you guys typically listen to podcasts on. Um, I've never really hosted a podcast on multiple platforms before, let alone even done a podcast. So I'm still super new to putting this in different places. And, um, um, you know, I, I may even just host these on my website and have people listen to them there. I'm not exactly sure. But, um, yeah, just let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of this podcast. If you have more questions, please shoot them my way. Um, kind of dwindling down on questions. So please give me more. Um, they can be super nuanced questions as well. If you really want nitty gritty, like detail stuff or, you know, what have you just, just give me a heads up. Let me know. Um, appreciate all of you guys. Thank you for listening and, uh, stay tuned for maybe next week or whenever I, I get around to making the next one. I've not really put a, a standard schedule down of when to do these podcasts, but I think as, as I get more into them and uh, get doing more of them, I'll, I'll kind of know better what timeline we're looking at and maybe we'll, maybe we'll have it all scheduled out. But uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening to Abstract Thought. I'll catch y'all later. This is uh, Nick Smith. Peace. Music.